0: Welcome, you are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have no vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the February 26th reading of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. Well, as usual, there's a lot going on in sports, both on and off the field, and we've got a lot of things to catch up on, so let's get started. We're going to start with basketball. This article appeared February 19th by the Associated Press, and it appeared in publications worldwide from Waco, Texas. Brittany Griner's number 42 jersey was retired by Baylor on Sunday when the two-time Associated Press National Player of the Year and career blocks leader attended a Bears home game for the first time since her senior season 11 years ago. The standout center even did an impromptu slam dunk. Greiner was part of Baylor's 40-0 national championship team as a junior during the 2011-12 season, the first of her consecutive Associated Press Player of the Year awards. Her final home games were when the Bears won in the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament at the Ferrell Center on campus in March of 2013, including three dunks in her last game there, before losing the following weekend to Louisville in the Sweet 16. The jersey was raised to the rafters in the new Foster Pavilion where Baylor began playing last month. The ceremony before a game against Texas Tech included video highlights from her career. Reiner was visibly touched by the reaction from the Baylor fans, waving at them and patting her heart, though she didn't address the crowd. Just full of emotion, Greiner said during an in-game interview on the ESPN broadcast. As soon as the jersey started to go up, that's when I started to break. Greiner said it meant everything to be honored and appreciated by the school that she gave so much to during her time there. She completed her Baylor degree in 2019. When Baylor students were taught, taking part in a halftime contest to dunk like Greiner, she came out onto the court and delighted the crowd with a one-handed dunk of her own. Baylor won that game handedly 61 to 32. In 148 games over four seasons with Baylor, the 6foot8 center averaged 22.2 points, 8.8 rebounds, and 5.1 block shots. Reiner's 3283 total points are a big 12 record and fifth on the NCAA career list, and her 748 blocks still stand as an NCAA record for women or men. Nikki Collin had said since becoming Baylor's coach three years ago that she wanted to retire the number 42 jersey. That was delayed when Greiner was detained and imprisoned in Russia for 11 months in 2022 before she came back to the United States in a high-profile prisoner swap. Before Sunday's game, Colin said that she pushed for that because she believed it was right for the program and for Greiner. Colin wore a gold blazer with number 42 prominent on the back. The jacket also had many of Greiner's accomplishments stitched onto the sleeves. Greiner's coach at Baylor was Kim Mulkey, who won three national titles in her 21 seasons with the Bears before returning to her home state, as LSU's coach in April of 2021. I think it's awesome, Mulkey said on Saturday when asked about Griner's jersey being retired by Baylor. No one has worn number 42 for Baylor since Griner finished her college career. When asked during the ESPN interview what she remembered most fondly from her time at Baylor, she said it was the moments that she spent with teammates and fans. When you look back at it, you start to forget about the stats. You just remember the wins and you remember all the other things, Griner said. Phoenix selected Griner number one overall in the 2013 WNBA draft, and she has been a six-time All-Star while spending her entire career with the Mercury. She is also a two-time Olympic gold medalist. It's the seventh women's basketball jersey retired by Baylor, the others being... Odyssey Sims, Melissa Jones, Nina Davis, Susie Snyder Eppers, Sheila Lambert, and Sophia Young. Greiner was teammates with Sims and Jones. So, congratulations to Greiner. And I hope she's recovering well from all that trauma being in Russia. Moving on. This article by Adrian Warzanowski, He's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out on February 12th on ESPN.com. Charlotte Hornets president of basketball operations, Mitch Kupchak, is stepping down to become an organizational advisor, clearing the way for the franchise to begin an immediate search for a new head of basketball operations. There is an expectation that new owners Rick Schnall and Gabe Plotkin will hire a new top basketball executive prior to the end of the regular season, which will allow Jack to remain in his day-to-day role until his successor is on board. Jack, who is 69, would be completing a remarkably successful career that included 10 championships as a front office executive and player. The Hornets' search is expected to focus on several sitting general managers, including Philadelphia's Elton Brand, New Orleans' Trajan Langdon, Cleveland's Mike Gansey, and L.A. Clippers' Trent Redden. Brooklyn's Jeff Peterson, Washington's Travis Chnellick, and Sacramento's Wes Wilcox are among assistant GMs who will be in consideration as well. Peterson, Schlenick and Wilcox worked with the Atlanta Hawks when Schnall was one of the franchise's minority owners. Schnall and Plotkin have started spearheading significant change and upgrades in the Hornets' infrastructure since purchasing a majority interest in the team from Michael Jordan for $3 billion last August. The Hornets made several roster moves in recent weeks to start gathering draft assets on young players for a rebuild including two future first-round picks in trades that sent out Terry Rozier and P.J. Washington. Rookie forward Brandon Miller has shown the promise of a future All-Star. The franchise has also embarked on a $275 million arena renovation and plans for a new $60 million practice facility. The Hornets are 11-41 and and have been largely decimated by injuries this season. Pup Jack will be completing his sixth season as Charlotte's top basketball executive, a run that included the drafting of Miller and 2021 NBA Rookie of the Year All-Star guard LaMelo Ball. Before joining the Hornets in 2018, Pup Jack had a decorated 30-year run in the Lakers front office, including 17 years as GM with four NBA championships and six Western Conference titles. Boop Jack won seven titles as an executive, two as a Lakers player, and one as a Washington's player. We have a couple of obituaries to pass along. This article came out February 23rd by the Associated Press, and it appeared in publications worldwide. From Montreal, Jean-G. Talbot, one of the 12 Montreal Canadiens players to win five consecutive Stanley Cups from 1956 to 1960, has died. He was 91. The Canadians announced Talbot's death on Friday morning after multiple media outlets have reported the news. Born in Quebec on July 11, 1932, Talbot played 17 seasons in the NHL with five teams from 1954 to 1971. Talbot also served as coach of the St. Louis Blues from 1972 to 74 and the New York Rangers in 1977 and 78. He held similar positions in the World Hockey Association in 1975 and 76. During his playing career, Talbot totaled 43 goals and 242 assists with 1,014 penalty minutes in 1,066 games. He had four goals and 26 assists, with 142 penalty minutes in 151 playoff games. In 801 games with the Canadiens from 1954 to 1967, he recorded 36 goals and 209 assists, and also won the Stanley Cup in 1965 and in 66. He had his best individual season in 1961 and 62 with five goals and 42 assists in 70 games to earn him his only selection as an NHL first-time All-Star. That same season, he finished third in Norris Trophy voting as the best defenseman behind New York Rangers' Doug Harvey and Chicago's Pierre Pilote. After losing to the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1967 Stanley Cup Final, he was claimed by the Minnesota North Stars in the NHL expansion draft, but played only four games with them before being traded to the Detroit Red Wings. After 32 games with the Red Wings, Talbot was claimed off waivers by the Blues. In St. Louis, Talbot reunited with former Canadian teammates Harvey, Dickie Moore, and goalie Jock Plant, all of whom played key roles in Montreal's late 1950s dynasty. Talbot helped the Blues reach the Stanley Cup final in three straight seasons. However, they were swept each time, twice by the Canadiens and once by the Boston Bruins. Don Marshall, also 91 years old, is the only survivor of the Canadiens' late 1950s dynasty. This article also came out on February 23rd, also by the Associated Press, and it too appeared in publications worldwide from Chicago. Bear's great Steve McMichael is back home after spending more than a week in the hospital with several ailments. The 66-year-old McMichael, who went public with an ALS diagnosis three years ago, was admitted into intensive care at a suburban hospital on February 15th with a urinary tract infection. He was hospitalized one week after being voted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. McMichael was also treated for pneumonia and MRSA, a staph infection that can be difficult to treat because it is resistant to certain antibiotics. During his stay, uh, Shepard said that he will have round the clock nursing care at home and receive IV antibiotics to treat his infections. The outpouring of love, support, and prayers have helped Steve get through this latest battle, said Shepard in a statement. All he wanted to do was get home to wife Misty and daughter Macy, where he feels the most comfortable. Rick Michael, who controlled the interior line of the Bears' famed 46 defense, was an All-Pro during the 1985 Super Bowl championship season, and again in 1987. He played in a franchise record 191 consecutive games from 1981 to 1993, and ranks second to Hall of Fame Richard Dent on the Bears' career sacks list with 92 and a half. His final season was with Green Bay in 1994. Whether he was harassing opponents or discussing the Bears on sports talk radio, the man known as Ming the Merciless and Mongo, after the character in Blazing Saddles, who knocked out a horse, remained a prominent presence in Chicago long after his playing days had ended. He also spent five years in professional wrestling in the late 1990s. And in other football news, this article came out February 24th by the Associated Press. And of course, it appeared in publications worldwide. Former Dallas Cowboys receiver John Golden Richards has passed away of congestive heart failure at the age of 73. Richards had been in declining health in recent years, undergoing four surgeries after breaking a hip in a fall in 2022. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2011. He has left us and gone to a better place, Doug Richards told the Desiree News. He fought pretty good there to the end until it was his time. A star at BYU, Golden Richards was a second-round pick of the Cowboys in 1973, spending five-plus seasons in Dallas. He saved his biggest moments for the postseason, catching a touchdown pass that helped seal the Cowboys' Super Bowl XII victory over the Denver Broncos. He also scored for Dallas in the 1975 and 1977 NFC title games. Richards finished his career playing for the Chicago Bears in 1978 and 79 and then played for the Broncos in 1980. He is survived by two adult sons, Goldie Jr. and Jordan, and a two-year-old grandson, Jet. And yes, Golden Richards is now in a better place. All right, continuing on, this is more of a local Denver area article. This article came out on February 25th by Sam Pina, and it appeared in the Denver Post from Lakewood, Colorado. The Colorado fencing community is in mourning after an accomplished wheelchair fencer was killed in a hit-and-run accident in Lakewood on Friday night. Terry Engdahl was a para-fencer and competed with the Denver Fencing Center, where he won several awards. Even though he's gone, I have a smile on my face because you can't help it when you think about every time he walked in the door says Jatea Taylor, a friend of Engdahl's and fellow para-fencer. Taylor and Engdahl met a year and a half ago when Taylor began training as a wheelchair fencer. A Marine veteran, Taylor lost her leg in a training accident. After meeting Engdahl on her first day at the center, Taylor said he freely shared with her his fencing wheelchair. Our chairs are a part of our personality, And we get protective over our adaptive equipment, said Taylor. But Terry's like, no, you sit in it. You fence. He was always willing to share anything he had. Taylor found out about Engdahl's death on Saturday morning from their coach, Nathan Anderson. She said his passing was extra painful since the driver fled the scene. They have no idea what they took away from his family, from us as a fencing family, from the community and all the joy that he brought to others, said Taylor. With the upcoming Paranationals and Paralympic trials, Taylor said the team is now focused on honoring Engdahl's memory. None of us have an excuse not to be there because he would be there if he could, says Taylor. The Lakewood Police Department is searching for the driver who fatally struck Engdahl. The crash happened about around 7.27 p.m., near the intersection of Tipling and West 23rd Avenue. The driver of a 2014 Chevy Camaro with Colorado license plate DWB-T87 took off westbound on 23rd Avenue after the crash. A Medina alert was issued Saturday afternoon for the Camaro, which police said sustained heavy front-end damage and will be missing the driver's side headlight. Anyone with information is asked to call Lakewood Police at 303-987-7300 or Metro Denver Crime Stopper at 720-913-7867. And when we catch the driver, we will certainly keep you updated. Turning to baseball now, all of you Cubs fans probably remember Hall of Famer Ryan Sandberg. This article by Jesse Rogers, he's a staff writer for ESPN, and it came out in January on ESPN.com. Hall of Fame second baseman Ryan Sandberg, who played 15 seasons for the Chicago Cubs, announced on Instagram that he has been diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer and has begun treatment. To my Chicago Cubs National Baseball Hall of Fame, extended baseball family, the city of Chicago, and all my loyal fans, I want to share some personal news. Last week, I learned that I have been diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer. I have begun treatment, and I am surrounded by my loving wife, Margaret, our incredibly supportive family, the best medical care team, and our dear friends. We will continue to be positive, Strong and fight to beat this. Please keep us in your thoughts and prayers during this difficult time for me and my family." Sandberg, who is 64, was a 10-time All-Star during his 15 seasons for the Cubs from 1982 to 1997, amassing 282 home runs and 344 stolen bases. After his playing career, He served as a manager of the Philadelphia Phillies from 2013 to 2015, going 119 wins against 159 losses. He has been a fixture for the Cubs at spring training and Wrigley Field over the years, providing guidance for young infielders while being an ambassador for the team. He has appeared as a pregame and postgame analyst in various media as well. We cannot imagine how incredibly tough it is right now for for ryan and his family but we do know that ryan is one tough competitor and a winner says Cubs senior vice president julian green we are rallying around his family with locked arms as they begin their journey to conquer this battle with cancer the cubs are scheduled to unveil a statue of sandberg outside of wrigley field on june 23rd the 40th anniversary of his best game with the team when he hit a game-tying home run in the bottom of the ninth and 10th innings and had seven RBIs in Chicago's 11-winning 12-1 to victory over the St. Louis Cardinals. Sandberg won the National League MVP in 1984, the year that the Cubs won a division title. He led the league in triples and runs scored that season while hitting 314 with 19 homers. He also won nine consecutive Golden Glove awards. In 1990, Sandberg hit 40 home runs, becoming just the third primary second baseman to reach the 40-homer plateau. He was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 2005. And once again, if we learn more about Ryan Sandberg, we will keep you posted. Here is an update on the Wander Franco investigation that's going on in the Dominican Republic. This article by Jeff Fasson and Juan Arturo Ricillo. It appeared in January on ESPN.com, something I've been trying to get to for a while, and, uh, well, the goalposts keep moving as we learn more. When everything was falling apart for Wander Franco, the incandescent star shortstop for the Tampa Bay Rays, prosecutors in the Dominican Republic alleged that he opened WhatsApp on his phone and sent a message to the teenage girl with whom he carried on a months-long relationship and paid to remain quiet about it. My girl, Franco allegedly wrote in Spanish, if my team realizes this, it could cause problems for me. It's a rule for all teams that we cannot talk to minors, and yet I took the risk and I loved it. After a nearly six-month investigation, Franco was arrested on New Year's Day for not appearing in court to answer a summons from a governmental child welfare unit in his native Dominican Republic. Prosecutors later accused him of having sex with the 14-year-old girl when he was 21 years old and presented charges of commercial sexual exploitation and money laundering. He could face up to 20 years in prison and his reckoning with the possibility of his Major League Baseball career ending at the age of 22. In a nearly 600-page document presented to the judge at a hearing this month and obtained by ESPN, prosecutors shared the evidence that they have found in their investigation into Franco underway since a formal complaint was first filed on July 10th of 2023. The file includes transcripts of interviews with the girl and her relatives, messages between Franco and the girl, and much more. There are serious questions regarding the authenticity of particular documents and references contained in the prosecutor's confidential file, which was inappropriately disclosed to certain media outlets, says Franco's United States-based attorney, Jay Raisinger. We are in consultation with Mr. Franco's legal counsel in the Dominican Republic, and we intend to take the necessary legal measures in response. A spokesperson for the Puerto Plata Prosecutor's Office said the office declines to make any comment regarding an open investigation, as is the case with Wander Franco. For all of its deliciousness, Franco's circumstances are rather straightforward. An all-star with Hall of Fame aspirations and a nine-figure contract has allegedly committed a crime that could land him in prison for years. The story of the girl, unnamed by ESPN because these are sexual exploitation charges, including alleged abuse not just from Franco but also her mother, who herself faces charges of money laundering based on gifts and payments from Franco. In the document, the girl detailed a toxic relationship with her mother, who said that the girl sees me as an object to make money. During an interview with a forensic psychologist, the girl said her mother drinks heavily and gets violent. By the time the complaint was filed against Franco, the girl had moved out of her home away from the woman who raised her. I don't see her as a mother, the girl told the psychologist. A mother doesn't do what she has done to me. The girl, now 15, met Franco online, according to prosecutors. According to the documents, he took her from her home in Puerto Plata on the northern coast of the Dominican Republic on December 9th of 2022 for two days. During that time, they had sex twice and started a relationship that lasted for four months, according to prosecutors. A cousin who grew up with the girl's mother later told authorities that Franco would send a helicopter to Montanello, a town near Puerto Plata, to pick up the girl and bring her to see him. Other times, she said, Franco's driver would ferry the girl from Puerto Plata to Franco's hometown of Bani, a -a three-and-a-half-hour car ride. One time, the cousin said, the mother paid a taxi driver 16,000 Dominican pesos, which is about $275, so the girl could meet with Franco in Bani. Franco, the cousin, Franco, the girl told the psychologist, was not shy about being seen in public with her. They went to various social events, she said, and she relied on his money to be formal and groomed and not repeat clothes. When her mother found out about the relationship, the girl said, she suddenly started telling him that I needed things and asked for 100,000 pesos a month. Since I was little, my mother has seen me as a way for her to benefit from both the partner's She has had, and my partners, and it's something that I really dislike. The way she did it with her partners was by telling them that I needed money for my education, purchase of school supplies, or some some need related to me. For most of the final two months of their relationship last year, Franco was in spring training with the Rays. After the season began, the relationship strained, and she started seeing someone else. After she told Franco that they talked over WhatsApp, according to the file presented by prosecutors, Franco wrote, I would like you to forget everything you've learned to raise you my way. He responded, and what is your way? Without love? Without respect? Franco replied, There was more to it, but but you're just a girl, and you don't know how to get along with me, and that's why you failed. But I'll give you only one chance— You must be only for me. Don't look at anyone. I know you've been with someone else, but no one will know how to use you the way that I want. According to the documents, the girl said that she was upset by the conversation and contacted a reporter, after which her mother filed the official complaint to prosecutors in the Dominican Republic. I feel sorry because I didn't want to hurt Franco, the girl said. He was good to me. About a month later, allegations of the relationship leaked on social media on August 14th, prompting Major League Baseball to investigate Franco. The league placed him on administrative leave for the remainder of the 2023 season. Meanwhile, the girl's relationship with her mother worsened. Another relative interviewed by authorities told prosecutors that the girl wrote a letter saying that she was going to kill herself, alarming family members. She moved out of her house, prompting her mother to file a kidnapping complaint. The mother alleged that the girl once pulled a knife on her, but the girl said both sides of the family know that she's the one who has always attacked me because she has alcohol problems, and when she drinks, you don't do what she she wants. She gets violent. At a relative's birthday party, In August, the girl saw her mother, who she said was drunk, according to the documents. That same day, the cousin said a person driving a Hyundai Sonata rolled by recording the house. The mother called the cousin two minutes later and warned that people associated with Franco were going to kill everyone here in the house, said the cousin, who later realized that the car belonged to the girl's mother. In July and August, Franco had given the girl 2.7 million pesos, which is about 46,000 U.S. dollars, to support herself until college. With it, she bought an iPhone, an iPad, her school uniform, supplies, and personal items. Her cousin helped her open a bank account to deposit the remainder around $37,500. Franco had furnished the girl's mother with even more money. The mother's receipt of monthly 100,000 peso payments from Franco, about $1,700, and a new car, a 2023 Suzuki Swift, were discovered by prosecutors during a September raid. Authorities also found $68,500 in American dollars and another 800,000 pesos, which is about $13,700, in her home. The investigation continued, and in late December, police sought to question Franco, who had returned to the Dominican Republic in December after being placed on leave. They looked for him at his home and his mother's, then at his uncle's. Police told Franco's wife that he needed to appear at the prosecutor's office on December 28th. He didn't show. He was and he was the same December 29th when he finally met with authorities on January 1st he was booked and remained in jail through January 8th when he paid bail after the prosecution's hearing a few days earlier for, for coercive measures, a pretrial procedure in which officials tried to prevent the accused from fleeing, destroying evidence, or intimidating accusers, accusers and witnesses. After the allegations surfaced in August, The girl posted on social media, quote, look, I'm going to tell you in confidence why I do all this. He used me, and as you saw in the messages, he bribed me a lot, and they took me out of school that I was in because of him. He has damaged my life, and he has not even tried to fix it, end quote. She then deleted all her accounts. Franco denied the allegations on Instagram Live that day and hasn't spoken officially since, His only comments were during a break at the hearing, telling reporters, it's all in God's hands. If he's found guilty, he faces a potentially lengthy suspension from Major League Baseball, after which securing a visa to allow him to play Major League Baseball could be even more complicated. Both the Rays and the league declined to comment for this story, citing the ongoing investigations. It's a dramatic fall for a player around whom the Rays thought that they would build their franchise. Franco dropped out of school at 12 years old to pursue a baseball career full-time. A switch-hitting shortstop with power and speed and the nephew of a former big leaguers Eric and Willie Abar, he fetched a $3.8 million bonus in 2017 to sign with the Rays and debuted with them in 2021 just after he turned 20. The Rays gave him an 11-year, $182 million extension that autumn, just 70 games into his Major League career. But his true breakout came in the 2023 season when he was named an All-Star for the first time. Whether Franco can make a case to collect the $174 million that Tampa Tampa Bay owes him for the final nine years of the contract remains unresolved. If Franco can't play because he's in prison, the Rays could get out of the deal, arguing Clause 7.B.1 of the league's uniform player contract, which states, quote, teams may terminate this contract if the player shall at any time fail, refuse, or neglect to conform his personal conduct to the standards of good citizenship, end quote. Until a trial, and that won't come for months, as prosecutors have up to six months to investigate Franco is free to leave the country as long as he checks in with police once a month. Officials in the Dominican Republic are divided on how to approach Franco's prosecution. Some would prefer charges of statutory rape to the counts of sexual exploitation and money laundering. The judge in the case, Romaldi Marcelino, suggested that Franco instead face counts of sexual and psychological abuse suggesting the prosecution is being tougher on Franco because he's an MLB player. Sexual abuse convictions carry a two- to five-year prison sentence. In the meantime, the girl awaits resolution. I just wanted to talk, she told the psychologist, because I want all of this to end. So, obviously, we'll keep you posted as things approach a trial date. Here's an interesting article. This was compiled by the ESPN News staff on February 21st and was published on ESPN.com. Major League Baseball expansion is coming. It's just a matter of when and where. While the timeline for Major League Baseball to go to 32 teams remains a bit murky, Commissioner Rob Manfred recently said that he hopes to have a process in place for the league to expand to 32 teams before he retires in 2029. There are plenty of candidates to land one of the franchises when the sport does expand, headlined by a pair of cities that have moved to the front of the line. Is your city one of the places that baseball could be eyeing? We asked our Major League Baseball reporters to break down the cases for and against the leading options. Austin and San Antonio, Texas. City population of 961,855 in Austin and 1.4 million for San Antonio. The metro area population of Austin is 2.4 million, while it's 2.6 million for San Antonio. TV market ranking is 35th for Austin and 31st for San Antonio. Most likely nickname? Austin has the largest urban bat population, so the Austin Bats is a strong option but they would have to share it with the minor league team in Louisville. Most likely stadium location? According to Austin journalist Brian Parker, the area east of the city could work. It includes a newer toll road, and it's where Tesla has headquarters, as well as where the airport's located. A case for Austin-San Antonio. Because these two cities are so close in proximity, We'll focus on Austin and San Antonio together for a potential expansion team. With that in mind, the case for Austin isn't a hard one to make. It's one of the largest U.S. markets without an existing NFL, NBA, or MLB team, and it's still growing, recently moving into the top 10 in population. It also has an expanding tech and big company community, which includes Apple and Amazon, among many others. Austin FC, a Major League Soccer team that began play in 2021, sold out all 17 of its home games in 2022, providing a test case for professional sports in the area. With San Antonio just 90 minutes from Austin, even closer if a stadium were to be built north of the city, the two can potentially combine their reach. What could stop it from landing a team? Does Matthew McConaughey like baseball? The actor, who has strong ties to the area, helped spearhead the recently built Moody Center where the University of Texas basketball team, teams now play. A similar commitment could help the concept of Major League Baseball in Austin gain ground, but a local ambassador has yet to emerge. The biggest obstacle each city faces is getting a team in getting a team might be the Houston Astros, who played just three plus hours away and have developed a strong fan base in the region. And that article was by Jesse Rogers. Turning now to Charlotte, North Carolina. City population of almost 875,000. The metro area population is 2.7 million, and their TV marketing rank is 21. Most likely nicknamed the Charlotte MLB Project lists the Charlotte Aviators as a possibility. Most likely stadium location. There is no clear choice here. Truist Field, the home of the Triple A Charlotte Knights, sits uptown with a new with a view of the city skyline, but seats just over ten thousand fans and was not built to expand to major league capacity. The case for Charlotte. The Charlotte metro area is bigger than that of some existing MLB teams, including Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. Charlotte already has proved that it can support multiple professional sports teams with an NFL, NBA, and MLS team all located in the city, and that doesn't include the Carolina Hurricanes, who play just over two and a half hours away in Raleigh. The Knights, who are the AAA affiliate of the White Sox, also play in the Queen City's downtown area and ranked 10th in all of minors in attendance last season. What could stop it from landing a team? Location. It is extremely unlikely that Major League Baseball would add two teams in the same region when it expands. And at the moment, Nashville appears to be at the front of the line to land such a team. The Music City has demonstrated more organized interest to bring an MLB team than Charlotte has. So the Charlotte MLB project, a movement to bring baseball to Charlotte, would have to kick into high gear. To Close the Gap, that article also by Jesse Rogers. Mexico City. The city population is 9.2 million. The metro area population is 21.8 million. And there isn't a marketing uh, rank for their TV. The most likely nickname is the Red Devils. The Red Devils are a very successful Mexican League team that plays out of the city's biggest ballpark, the Alfredo Harp-Hilu Stadium. And the locals have thrown around the idea of a future MLB team taking that nickname, though that might not fly given the controversy surrounding the Tampa Bay Devil Rays nickname. Most likely stadium location would be Alfredo Harp-Hilu Stadium the place that hosted the first regular season MLB series in Mexico City last year and will do so again this year. Colorado Rockies and the Houston Astros will play two games there in late April. The ballpark opened just five years ago, but it has a seating capacity of only about 20,000 and would have to expand in order to host Major League teams on a regular basis. The case for Mexico City. It's right up there with the Sao Paulo, Brazil, as the largest city in the Western Hemisphere. Mexico City is vibrant and diverse, and the people there love baseball, especially after Mexico's thrilling run through the World Baseball Classic last spring. Tickets for last season's two-game series between the San Francisco Giants and the San Diego Padres, which marked Major League Baseball's first regular season series in Mexico's capital city, sold out in less than an hour. The atmosphere of at those games was electric. On opening day last season, more than thirty percent of Major League Baseball rosters were composed of Hispanic players. Because of the interest in the sport in Latin America, putting an expansion team in the region makes too much sense. And having one in Mexico would be far more feasible than having one in Cuba, the Dominican Republic, or Venezuela for a myriad of reasons what could stop it from landing a team a lot unfortunately the most prominent reason might be the limits on revenue that can be drawn in a country where its currency is exceedingly volatile and the people who live there earn far less than they than they do in the united states or canada mexico city's reputation for high crime rates whether fair or not might make it difficult for a team there to attract top tier free agent talent as might as might the fact that the city is located roughly six hundred miles south of any u s city, the stadium sits at a whopping seven thousand three hundred forty nine feet above sea level, more than two thousand feet higher than even Coors Field. but a bigger problem might be that it does not have a roof, given the amount of rain that falls on Mexico City in the summer. MLB Com- Commissioner Rob Manfred also said reading up to last year's Mexico City series, that he has never been close to the idea of Mexico as an expansion opportunity. And that article was compiled by Alvin Gonzalez. All right, Montreal, city population of 1.7 million, metro area population of 4.2 million, and they don't have a TV marketing rank. Most likely nickname are the Expos. This is one part of the process that's never been murky in Montreal, where the vibe among the pro MLB crowd has always been more bring back the Expos than we want an expansion team. The most likely stadium location is very much up in the air. The Peel Basin site that had been floated as a possible stadium location has more recently been targeted for housing development. Oversized and underused Olympic Stadium is set to be renovated, though that appears more for general use than anything Expos-related. The case for Montreal? After a string of MLB-related disappointments, Montreal needs baseball to make the next first move by launching a formal expansion process. When that happens, we know that Montreal can mobilize and do so quickly, perhaps as well as any candidate city. They've pulled together studies, pinpointed stadium sites, and created the core of a potential ownership group. They've even surveyed their fans, all elusive elements of a bid that have to come together at the right time. All of that legwork was for a now-expired bid, but what hasn't changed is that Montreal remains easily the largest of the leading candidates in market size, the fact that will keep them in the conversation. I would look at us as being the most mature of the groups that are out there, says William Jagger, a Montreal-based executive for Ernst & Young, who was a key figure in Montreal's most recent push for a team. When baseball launches a process, then we would examine what that process looks like and then make a decision as to whether it makes sense for us to put forth a bid. What could stop it from landing a team? The last serious bid to put Montreal forward as an expansion candidate fizzled. The reason for that isn't because of anything the Montreal Baseball Project did wrong, but more of a matter of timing. They made a strong case for the city before MLB was really ready to consider the issue. For a couple of years, the bid seemed at least half successful because of a proposed sister city concept in which Montreal and the Tampa Bay area would have shared the race. That notion was ultimately deboshed by MLB in January of 2022. After so many disappointments, it may really come down to how much of a thirst for a baseball team remains in a city that, by the time Major League Baseball gets the expansion wheels turning, could be a quarter century past the loss of the Expos. In the meantime, it is imperative that those in Montreal still pining for a club keep those fires burning. That article is by Bradford, too Doolittle. All right, Nashville, Tennessee, a city population of almost 700,000, and a metro area population of just over 2 million and a TV market rank of 27th. Most likely nickname, the Stars. Music City Baseball has branded its pitch around the city's former Negro League's team's name and the Sounds, which is the current name of Nashville's AAA club, are the clear options. The most likely stadium location could be a space across the Cumberland River from downtown Nashville near the Titans' current and future homes. The case for Nashville? Based on conversations with high-ranking executives within the sport, it seems close to a fait accompli that Nashville would win one of the next expansion teams. When the owners actually form a committee to study the possible growth from 30 to 32 teams, they will talk about how the Music City is already a major league city with the NFL's Titans, the NHL's Predators, and tremendous population growth in a part of the country that is wild about sports. For example, the area leadership has committed $2.1 billion. That's probably more than the cost of an expansion franchise for a new Titans stadium. What could stop it from landing a team? Nashville is not necessarily close to Cincinnati, St. Louis, or Atlanta. The major league teams from those cities probably will cringe at the idea of having pieces of their respective fan bases shaved off, though those concerns probably would not preclude Nashville from getting a team. And that article was by Buster Olney. Another expansion city is Orlando, Florida. A city population of just over 300,000, the metro area population is 2.7 million, and their TV marketing rank is 17th. Most likely nickname? The group trying to bring baseball to the city has branded itself the Orlando Dreamers, a nod to Walt Disney and Arnold Palmer and the many other visionaries who helped develop the area, according to the website. Something Disney-related, similar to the NHL's Anaheim Duck, seemed like a likely option. Most likely stadium location? With the available hotel and land space, along with a constant flow of visitors, it would make sense to put a park near Disney World. The case for Orlando? It's already a major league city, with the NBA's magic in town since 1989, and Orlando is much bigger than places like Cleveland and Cincinnati that already have Major League Baseball teams. After trial and errors with the Marlins and the Rays in the state, you'd assume that any ballpark project would be well-placed and include a necessary roof to combat Florida's seemingly daily wave of late afternoon showers. A family could cap off a day of rides at theme parks by catching a big league game. What could stop it from landing a team? The history of the Marlins and Rays, franchises that have already struggled badly for attention. The two teams have consistently been at or near the bottom of the majors in attendance, and so the idea of dropping a third team into the state makes some executives wheezy. There's no way that you'd put a third team in Florida, says one evaluator. No way. And that was by Buster Olney. Portland, Oregon. City population of 652,000, metro area population of 2.5 million, and their TV marketing rank is 22. Most likely nickname? Former Nike executive Craig Cheek and former Trailblazers broadcaster Mike Barrett head the Portland Diamond Project and have decided to avoid a team name for now. We'll involve the fans in that for sure, Barrett said. The Portland Beavers were the longtime Pacific Coast League team, but that's also the nickname of the Oregon State University sports teams, so a different name seems likely. The most likely stadium location, Cheek and Barrett believe this is one of the group's top selling points as they're zeroing in on 164 acres at what is now the Red Tail Golf Center in suburban Beaverton, located about a mile from Nike headquarters. How does swoosh stadium sound. You get to dream big when you have 164 acres, Cheek said, and the PDP is envisioning a sports, entertainment, and business complex that would be the largest ballpark district in America and more than twice the size of the battery ballpark development that has been a major success for the Atlanta Braves. The state also has about $300 million in state bonds to issue to support a stadium project paid for with a Jocks tax. The case for Portland: If Major League Baseball puts one team in the West and one in the East, that makes Portland a front runner. Portland is also the largest market in the country with just one of the four major pro sports teams. We are an underserved sports market, Barrett says. The Trailblazers have been enormously popular for decades, and both the men's and women's soccer teams in MLS and the NWSL play to sell out crowds. With Major League Baseball likely to realign to eight divisions of four teams after expansion, a Portland team would also create a natural rival for the Seattle Mariners and make travel easier for the rest of the league. MLB loves its rivalries, Barrett points out. While the Beavers last played to meager crowds in 2010, finishing last in the PCL in attendance, the PDP has a mailing list of 75,000 people with two-thirds of those fans saying that they would be willing-season willing ticket buyers. PDX baseball merchandise, with a P logo from the original Portland minor league team from the late 1800s, has been a big seller. I don't think any of the other cities out West have put in as much time or energy and are as turnkey ready as we are, Cheek says. But what could stop them from landing the team? Besides concerns about whether Portland is a baseball city, who is the owner? Cheek and Barrett say that they have local investors attached to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And once a real estate deal is secured, they will announce an ownership. You can expect some real estate developers to be involved, along with quarterback Russell Wilson and wife Sierra, Sierra, who are already investors. That article by David Schoenfeld. Well, we are running out of time, and we have four cities left. Raleigh, North Carolina, San Jose, California, and Salt Lake City. So let's turn, we'll get to those next week. So let's turn back to the Jackie Robinson statue that got stolen uh, a few weeks ago. This article by Anthony Oliveri came out on February 23rd on uh, ESPN.com from Wichita, Kansas. The bronze cleats from a Jackie Robinson statue that was cut at the ankles and stolen last month will be donated to the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. And that's from the league's executive director. We thought it was the absolute right thing to do, says Bob Lutz, who founded and operates League 42, which was named after the Baseball Hall of Famer and Civil Rights icon. It's looking like the cleats will be delivered by April 11th definitely before Jackie Robinson Day on April 15th. Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, said that there are plans to have a ceremony when the cleats arrive at the museum. Kendrick said the cleats likely will be displayed alongside a historical marker from Robinson's birthplace in Cairo, Georgia, a marker that was damaged by gunfire in 2021 and was also donated to the museum. We have a story to tell, Kendrick said. The statue, which police said was valued at $75,000, was stolen from McAdams Park, where League 42 plays its games. Police said they don't believe the crime to be racially motivated based on what they know at this time. Instead, according to police, it's believed that it was motivated by the financial gain of scrapping common metal using surveillance video police said that there were at least three individuals present when the statue was cut leaving the bronze replicas of robinson's cleats behind on february 13th police announced the arrest of ricky alarete who's 45 he was charged with felony theft valued of over twenty five thousand dollars aggravated criminal damage to property identity theft and making false information A Wichita police officer told ESPN that he believes there will be more arrests in the case. Well, that's all the time we have for sports this week. Thank you for joining us with this edition of Sports News. My name is Philip Bradbury. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.